0: Good morning, everybody. Thank you for attending today. This is session IPPS-03, When Pain is Not Sexy, The Evaluation and Management of Sexual Pain in Females. A couple of housekeeping items, if you may, if you want to provide uh, feedback on this session or for our faculty today, you can do that through the the, uh, Pain Week app. And on top of that, if you would please silence your cell phones, we will be taking questions at the end and we are recording the session so, um, please wait until you're called on and I'll run the microphone over you to you so that we can we can record the question. With that said, um, our faculty today is Dr. Georgine Lam Vu, and she is a gynecological surgeon and pelvic pain specialist in the Department of Surgery at the VA Medical Center in Orlando, Florida. With that said, please help me welcome our distinguished speaker today. Okay, so, uh... First of all, I'd like to thank every—I'd um, like to thank Pain Week and uh, for inviting me today. Um, it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm happy to take any questions at the end. These are my disclaimers on the left-hand side, and then on the right-hand side, my objectives. And today, we're basically going to focus on the clinical management of sexual pain. We're going to talk a little bit—a little bit about the impact of this disorder, and mostly, we're going to talk about therapies towards the end. Um, I am going to um, just confirm the announcements, Um, but I just wanna make sure you guys, please fill out your survey at the end. I do take those comments seriously. Um, So uh, if you could take a second at the end to fill the survey. And then um, if you, um, we're gonna do a lot of, some um, question and answers uh, throughout the talk. So if you wanna participate in that survey, all you have to do is pull out your cell phone and then um, text Uh, To 37607, Uh, text my name, which is Georgine uh, Lamb, without the U at the end, and then the number 137. So if you um, put those that use that text number and then text the whole name with the number at the end, then you'll be able to participate throughout the talk. I'll give you a second to do that. All right, so I too would like to start with a case because I think cases are a lot of fun, and I'm going to start with Mary. She's a 37-year-old female. She's been pregnant once and has one child, and uh, you actually see her for chronic low back pain, and I'm assuming that most people in this room are not gynecologists. Um, So you are done with your visit, and as you're walking out the door, she says, "Um, I know you don't have time, but I have this extra little problem I want to talk to you about and then she starts talking to you about her pain uh, with intercourse that she's had for several months now. And um, she also has uh, loss of desire or libido, and this is worrying her. Um, besides endometriosis, she has no other health issues, and she takes no other medications except for uh, a little bit of stuff that you give her for her chronic low back pain. And she has had an evaluation by another provider. She has a negative urinalysis, a negative urine pregnancy test, and a negative ultrasound. So my first question to you is, uh, what would you do with this patient who has long-standing genital pain and negative studies? I want everyone to think about that for a second, because this is what the whole talk is about. But the first thing you're going to do is not panic, like most of us do when a chronic pain patient walks into clinic. and I think the reason I put this up here is because uh, even in a room where everyone is used to talking and treating pain every day, as soon as the woman introduces the word vagina or sex into the conversation, everybody kind of just goes blank. <laughs> and so please don't panic and remember this talk. So the first question I have is, um, how many of you have seen this type of patient? A patient that is, shows up in your clinic completely for, great. Okay, so a bunch of people in the room couple one person answered. <laughs> um, and then the question that I have for you next is how would you classify this patient's pain? And there are many ways for classifying genital pain, and the genital pain terminology is actually uh, quite uh, convoluted. So there's dyspareunia, there's vulvodynia, there's vaginismus, and people use the, this term, the, all of these terms interchangeably, um, but it's important to know that they're not, um, that we do actually have Um, pretty specific definitions for each of one of these terms so first there's dyspareunia and um, this is pain um, uh, that occurs with intercourse and this is pain excuse me this is all of a sudden stopped working hey guys my slides just stopped working i don't know what happened here can you help me oh anyways, so there's dyspareunia um, which is pain with intercourse and dyspareunia can be um, situational which is pain that occurs um, in with specific in, in uh, situations oh that's better <laughs> the whole things dead uh, we can, do you, need a you know depression? no that's fine I don't care that might, that might okay well oh, okay. oh, good bed goodness okay that's fine okay all right so there's um, situational dysperunia which is pain that's limited to specific situations or positions It's usually associated with intercourse. There's general dyspareunia, which is pain that's not situational. There's primary dyspareunia, which is pain that presents with first onset of intercourse and secondary dyspareunia, which occurs after a period of time-free intercourse. And then there's superficial dyspareunia, which is pain limited to the vulvar, vestibule, and the vaginal introitus. And then there's deep dyspareunia, which is pain that occurs with deep penetration. And we have vaginismus, um, and this actually is specifically defined as an involuntary muscle spasm and fear of touch. So there's a large psychological component to this type of pain or this type of, uh, to this definition. And then there's vulvar pain, and vulvar pain um, is now um, broken down into pain associated or pain associated with a known etiology. So we know it's causing the pain, and there's pain of unknown etiology lasting longer than three months. There's also hyposexual um, desire disorder or arousal disorder, which has nothing to do with pain and, uh, um, and, and is basically just limited to um, um, loss of desire, loss of libido, but no pain. So in 2015, the ISSVD uh, classified vulvar pain into two parts. Like I said before, there's vulvar pain related to a specific disorder, such as infectious, inflammatory, neoplastic, or neurologic disorders. And then there is vulvodynia, which is a chronic lower uh, genital pain of unknown etiology. And as you'll see towards the end of the talk, so this is, this is one of the definitions that bothers me the most because I think people use vulvodynia to describe chronic genital pain, um, but they don't realize that it's broken down into two sections. That's chronic va- va- vaginal or vulvar pain that's due to a cause, which is actually 90% of the time when we see these patients we are able to identify a cause for their pain. And then there's a very, very small uh, percentage of patients when when we're not able to identify the cause of the pain. And then, and that's a second type of vulvodynia. But but in in the terminology, you see that we have, the vulvodynia gets used as vulvar pain. And technically it's only supposed to be used as a chronic pain of unknown etiology. And so when you have vulvodynia, that can be categorized as generalized vulvodynia, which applies uh, pain that um, uh, occurs over the entire vulva. There's localized vulvodynia, which is pain that's localized to the vestibule. There's provoked vulvodynia, which is pain that occurs with touch, uh, or unprovoked vulvodynia, which is pain that occurs spontaneously and some, many times continuously. And uh, I think Meryl touched a little bit about, uh, touched on the epidemiology of uh, vulvar and vaginal pain. So dyspareunia or sexual pain is uh, common. About 12 to 21% of women across the world will report having this type of pain. And in the United States, we have about 14 million women that we know of that will report having this type of pain. Here's another question for you. So uh, what is the annual economic impact on the United States healthcare of vulvodynia? And in this case, vulvodynia is defined as just vulvar pain. Whether it's known etiology or not, let's just ignore that. I'm going to let you guys guess. You have several options. Somebody guessed 900 million. So the right answer to that is about 31 to $72 billion of direct and indirect costs are um, as, uh, attributed to chronic vulvar and vaginal pain. So... This is a very, very, very big problem for us in the healthcare system, both because we have a very huge number of patients that have this type of pain, but also because it costs our healthcare system quite a lot to take care of these patients, and it costs our patients as well. Um, 60% of our patients are seeing uh, three or more doctors, and less than 3% of them will actually get the correct diagnosis at the end and and correct treatment. And uh, I think Merrill said this before, but on average, women suffer about five years before they are able to access a gynecologist and this is not in the slides but um how many um does anyone know how many gynecologists we have in the united states we have about forty-three thousand gynecologists and less than one percent of those actually specialize in vulvar pain so there's a lot of vulvar patients for the few of us that take care of these patients so anybody wants extra training come and get me i'll help you <laughs> all right <clears throat> so this is that question which we'll skip now, vulvodynia has been shown to impact, negatively impact women. Um, it's been associated, and I won't go through this literature, it's well known now, um, that it's been associated with a lot of sexual dysfunction, physical limitations, depression, anxiety, and other psychiatric comorbidities, and a lot of fatigue, insomnia, etc. cetera, just like any other chronic pain syndrome. Vulvodynia overlaps with many of the other chronic pain syndromes, so I call it as a You know, If you ever see a patient with vulvodynia, please screen for the other chronic pain syndromes. And if you see a patient with some other chronic pain syndrome, please screen for vulvodynia, because you're most likely going to capture a lot of patients that wouldn't otherwise tell you about their pain during intercourse or vaginal vulvar pain. So it's very common. It negatively impacts our patients and our healthcare system. So the question is, how do we evaluate these patients? And luckily enough for us, about 90% of our evaluation and uh, is focused um, uh, on, uh, uh, is basically just communication and observation. I think anybody who can talk to a patient can probably, properly treat a vulvodynia patient. Uh, and so, um, I don't think it's hard to do. The first thing to take away, though, is that chronic uh, genital pain is very similar to other chronic pain syndromes. And I know that some of you were at Susie's talk this morning where she shared some of the data on dysmenorrhea dyspareunia uh, mim- mimicking other chronic pain syndromes as far as CNS changes and um, psychosocial and biological factors that impact the pain. And vulvar and genital pain is no different. Um, and so when, if, if you know something about pain, then you'll do great with uh, vulvodynia patients um, because they're very, very similar to your other patients. And when we assess the patients, we too use the psychosocial model of pain assessment. We ask patients about their pain, of course, duration, location, whether it's associated with other uh, disability. Um, And then we spend a little bit of time on, on the specifics of their pain. Not that much really, but just a little bit. But one of the things that we always have to pay particular attention to is, When we're talking to patients, we have to screen them for additional things that may actually impact their outcome. And and that's one one of those things is screening these women for recurrent vulvovaginal infections and their hormonal status. So it's important to know the difference between a premenopausal and a postmenopausal patient because that would um, change uh, the way you think about ideologies for their pain and treatments. And of course, we always have to look for all of those comorbid pain and psychiatric disorders, adverse life uh, experiences such as sexual trauma Uh, physical trauma, um, and any kind of associated dysfunction that they may experience. And what type of dysfunction do women with sexual pain um, report? Um, Basically, Merrill's talk from before. They usually, a lot of times, they'll come in with not just pain, but they'll come in with urgency, frequency, uh, dysuria. Sometimes they'll come in with GI symptoms, such as painful defecation, constipation, bloating, nausea, and dyspareunia, which is why they're often... um, um, a lot of times, they get, they go down the endometriosis path, and they get that kind of treatments, and then nobody actually assesses the sexual pain. Um, they, these patients, a lot of them have musculoskeletal dysfunction, so they report pain not just with intercourse, but pain with movement, pain at the end of the worst, at the end of the day, um, and then they um, also present if they've had the pain for long enough, with a lot of um, physical disability and um, sexual function. Uh, or sexual dysfunction, I should say. When we're evaluating these patients, I I do want to thank Meryl for bringing up the point of expectations um, and how they impact patient care. And I think it's very important when we are seeing patients to emphasize that taking a history is not the same thing as communicating with the patient. And what do I mean by this? Well, taking a history, you know, this is when we focus on the symptom location, the character of the pain, where the pain radiates, uh, what patient feels the pain, um, types of treatments that they may have tried. Uh, all of these things are um, elements, important elements of the history. Um, then there's a daily function and how that affects them. And um, this is again, important, an important element of the, the history. But women won't communicate uh, these factors to you unless you communicate with them. And what I mean by that is, you have to use open-ended questions and allow them to express how this pain affects uh, their lives. And it's hard for women because this is a sexual pain for the most part. Uh, I mean, it's, or or a vaginal pain. It's not something that they're used to talking about openly. And um, sometimes they have a hard time actually starting the conversation with you, so you have to initiate it. And once you do, the floodgates open and, and you can pick up a lot of very important factors about the patient. So what's really interesting about genital pain is that a lot of the history is really not evident until you allow the patient to tell you what they think is wrong with them and to tell you what they want uh, to improve the most or what's most distressing to them. A lot of this history will not become evident until they trust you. And it will, for the most part, unless you are really, really good at this, which I think I'm pretty good at this, but even for me, many times it takes subsequent visits. And so I, I'm one of the few people who will give you 100% permission to take three, four, five, however many visits it takes to communicate properly with these patients, um, because I think that's more important than trying to fix everything in the first visit. And most of you, if you're like me in clinical practice, you have what, eight to 15 minutes to see a patient? Does anybody here have 30 minutes or more to see a patient? Good, then you guys are great, but the majority of the room uh, you know, you just don't have that kind of time and there's no way you can get all this history in that time, so take your time. If it takes more visits, then so be it. So first expectations or what occurs, the communication you have with the patient in that first visit is so important. The patient comes in with a lot of expectations that are not necessarily the same expectations that you have. Most of the time our research shows that the patients want to be first and foremost believed and validated. They want reassurance, They want to establish trust. They want to overcome feelings of isolation and invalidation. Remember, these are women that have been in pain for a long time. They want an explanation for their pain. They want a better quality of life. Some of them want a cure, but it's amazing. A lot of them actually don't expect a cure. We think, we just assume they expect a cure, but it's amazing once you actually start talking to them, most of them just want to feel better. And the providers, what do providers want during that first visit? Well, you want to find out what's causing the pain, so you want a diagnosis. You want to very quickly figure out what additional testing you need to do to get to that diagnosis. You want to quickly kind of assign a treatment. You want a quick, efficient visit. You usually have quite a bit of anxiety about being able to provide help because if it's a chronic pain, most of us know that that takes quite some time. And most of us know that these patients require long-term treatment And most of us think that there is no cure for these types of patients. So all of that adds in with just a mismatch in expectations because you're feeling like you can't help your patient and the patient's saying, please, 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 believe me, please, believe me, oh yeah, and by the way, help me and fix me if you can. So the interactions during this first visit really do influence outcome. I think Meryl made that point very nicely earlier. And it influences outcome more than the treatments you prescribe. So I'm here to tell you, the other permission that I give you, besides taking more than one time, one visit to see the patient, I'm here to tell you that if you don't examine the patient because you don't have time, because you've spent more time actually talking to the patient, that's okay too. So before you walk into the patient's room, take a nice deep breath. Remember, chronic pain leads to very predictable behavior. Um, most of our patients are not faking it. I think a lot of patients come to clinic. I've heard this actually. You know, some uh, my patients have said that oh, the doctor doesn't believe my pain because they just think I don't wanna have sex. And actually the literature does not support that. Literature shows that most of these women do want to be sexually active. The majority of them, something like 85% of them are actually sexually active in spite of the pain. And yet they don't feel like we believe their pain and we're making them feel like they're just trying to avoid intercourse. Patients do not know the complexities of pain even though they live with pain every day. So it's our job to make them understand how complex pain physiology is. A very, very small majority, minority of our patients are actually pain-seeking, so we can just throw that out the window. And it's also important to remember before you walk into the room that the patient is going to communicate how, to you how they experience the pain. And in the end, the entire visit is not about how you interpret their pain, okay? This is about them. They've already told you how they experience the pain. Just take it. Don't try to analyze it. Be patient with yourself and with the patient, and even though you may not necessarily know the answer, especially in that first visit, be kind to these women. They go from doctor to doctor to doctor, and one of the most common complaints we hear is, the doctors are not kind to us. So also in that first visit, i like to offer you some guidelines for getting through that first visit. Um, I always start with an explanation for why chronic pelvic pain and vaginal pain are very complex and require multiple interventions. And you guys are all pain specialists, so I don't have to go through that, luckily enough for me. I do spend quite a little bit of time um, talking about the patient's expectations, my expectations for long-term treatment, um, and the potential for repeated gynecologic examinations, especially if we don't get to it today or on that first visit. I always spend some time allowing the patient to prioritize what she considers improvement and I actually let patients choose what they wanna work on first, and you'd be surprised. We always assume that it's the pain, but in, 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 in my gynecologic world, it's, it's amazing how well, actually, women live with this kind of pain. So a lot of them just want improvements in function, improvement in relationship, you know, just being able to tolerate some kind of intimacy with their partner. They don't necessarily look for a full cure. And I try to explain all of these things in that first visit before the physical exam even again if it requires a subsequent and prolonged visit. We always try to do what we call uh, trauma-informed care. Uh, If you are in the VA system, you've heard about this. But basically our GYN exam always starts, or we we do this after we really focus on establishing trust. We talk a lot about um, doing some kind of uh, either actual communication or guidance uh, to help the patient relax, although nobody can relax through a pelvic exam but just to help decrease some of their anxiety before the pelvic exam because they're expecting the pain. Um, we always get the history with the patient dressed and with the chaperone, uh, we always do our exam with a chaperone. And I, Earlier um, there was a, uh, someone in the audience that had mentioned that she examined a patient who then later complained about being traumatized. And um, so it's very important to have a chaperone in the room even if you are a physical therapist, which I know it's not standard in physical therapy Uh, Or maybe it is. Meryl shaking her head. No, it's not. Okay. But in GYN and really in medicine, anytime you're doing a genital exam, anything below the belt, you should have a chaperone. I also try to educate the patient, um, uh, try to give her a sense of control. And I think this is very important, especially for patients who feel like they may be traumatized. They have to know that they can stop the exam anytime that they want to that just because they stop the exam, it doesn't mean that it's all useless. So if they need to stop, they can stop. I always try to tell them what we're going to examine and what we're going to do, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. I talk a lot about the sensory exam and, and pain severity scales. Um, I try to tell them, um, to, trying to differentiate between what I'm going to do in clinic and what they feel at home. And you read in books all the time about trying to replicate the patient's pain during the clinical exam. But I'm here to tell you don't. First of all, you won't be able to replicate what the patient feels when she's lifting you know, 40 pounds of weight or when she's feeling the impact of intercourse. There's just no, and if you can replicate it, there's a problem, okay? But you, you just won't be able to replicate it. So if you don't get the reaction that you expect to get from the patient because you weren't able to replicate that much force during the exam, you can't use that information to not believe the patient. Okay? So you're automatically going to be a lot gentler, and you're automatically not going to be able to replicate what they feel in their real lives. So I tell them, I'm not trying to replicate what you feel in your real life, because that's probably pretty traumatizing. Just tell me if I'm close. Am I in the general location? Does this kind of feel like what you feel at home? It's very important for them to have the sense of control in the sense that you are not trying to traumatize them again. And then... Um, well, if you ever get to the physical exam, to the speculum exam, I always use to uh, the smallest speculum exam, uh, the s- a smallest speculum that I can find for the exam. And again, I've already said that I give them the option to start and stop at any point or to break up the exam into multiple visits. Trauma-informed care means that you screen for trauma before you start the exam. Please try to remember this. Although not all women, in fact, a significant portion of women who have genital pain don't have a history of sexual abuse or physical abuse. Um, a lot of them do so you have to be able to screen for that before you actually start the exam and you might decide to treat those patients differently. Make sure the patient's properly covered, we've already talked about the chaperone, and monitor all of verbal cues during the exam and nonverbal cues because when you're doing the pelvic exam where are you? Right, you, you can't see the patient's face. You, you can't see any, and most of them are, you know, with their eyes closed, scrunched like this, and you can't see anything. So either you need to ask your nurse to help you and just gently tap you on the shoulder if, if she sees that the patient's not tolerating what you're doing, or go slow and look at the top every once in a while. You have to be able to monitor your patient. And again, stop the exam at any time and always get permission before starting or resuming the exam. And this, this applies to our physical therapy colleagues because I think, you know, the patient goes to you, now she's been referred to you, so you feel like you have to fix their problems all in one visit. You don't. It's like Meryl said, you can spend some time actually talking to the patient, gaining the trust, and then continuing on as you can. And then if you see any signs of distress, you know, ask the patient, would you like to stop or take a minute? Do you want to delay the exam? Please don't tell patients to relax. How many people here have had a relaxing or comfortable pelvic speculum exam? Put your hand up. I want to know. Because <laughs> I want to study you if you do. Nobody, even our normal controls, don't have a comfortable exam, and they're not able to relax during the physical exam. So for us to ask our pain patients to do that's ludicrous, so let's not do it. As you're doing the exam, you always have to keep in mind the multitude of conditions that have been associated with sexual pain. You can try and characterize uh, conditions by superficial or insertional pain versus deep pain. Go ahead. Whatever. I mean, the list of things that can cause sexual pain is enormous. Most providers are comfortable with vaginitis or inflammatory causes for the pain. Most providers are comfortable with hormonal causes for sexual pain, such as vaginal atrophy in postmenopausal women, or vaginal atrophy in cancer survivors. Um, a lot of g- providers are comfortable diagnosing things like endometriosis, masses, pelvic inflammatory disease. If you're a gynecologist, you, you're doing some of, you're, you're considering some of these diagnoses. A lot of us are now asking about obstetric trauma, surgical trauma, recognizing that these conditions can really impact the pelvic floor muscles and lead to pain. Some of us, if you're uh, pretty advanced, you're also thinking about vulvar dermatosis. So these are all what I call the vaginal eczemas, although it's not correct to call them eczemas. But they're, they're dermatosis of the vulvar and vaginal skin, and they can all lead to pain during intercourse. <clears throat> But here's the ones that we're missing a lot. A lot of our sexual pain patients come in with pelvic floor myalgias and myofascial syndromes from OB trauma, from surgeries, from having endometriosis that's not been treated or partially treated. And they come in with these myalgias and no one recognizes them, okay? And then the neuralgias. This is another often missed group of diagnosis that leads to pain in the vaginal and um, vulvar region. And then if you are keeping track of your patient's dysfunction uh, symptoms like your urgency, frequency, um, constipation, you might even want to include the urinary and the gastroenterologic ideologies for pain. And all of those ideologies, such as um, painful bladder syndrome, previously known as IC, or IBS, all of those can um, also have, there's a lot of crossover between those disorders and vulvodynia or vulvar pain. So the question is then how do you go through all of this? Like, how do you rule these things out this is just such a massive list and I always say well just start with the one through six physical exam and we always of course number one on the list is describing the patient's mood and affect number two is doing a full musculoskeletal exam of the lower abdomen and pelvis and then move on to your external vulvar exam your external vulvar sensory exam your single-digit internal musculoskeletal exam and then last, if tolerated, your internal speculum exam. I think if you go through these six steps for patients with vaginal pain, you can, and really just pelvic pain in general, right? You can pretty much, this is about as thorough as you can be and you will pick up most of the, the uh, differential diagnoses that have been associated with vulvar and vaginal pain, as well as pelvic pain. Okay, we'll skip that. So the external visual exam, um, I'm, I didn't do the musculoskeletal exam because I think uh, Meryl covered it very well. Um, so um, we're gonna start with the external visual exam. So what is normal? Um, well, uh, there's a lot of variation as to uh, what is a normal vagina. And I actually have patients, a lot of patients come in and say, especially as they age, is my, is my vagina, does it look normal? And, and I go, Oh, I looks like, <laughs> I've seen like 50 different types of uh, vaginas. But in general, so what you're looking for is abno- obvious abnormalities. Uh, fissures at the six o'clock position. I don't know if you can see this, but it's down here on the posterior foreshad. These are very common in women who have been having traumatic intercourse. Uh, not trauma meaning, uh, traumatic not meaning they've been uh, physically traumatized, but they're having intercourse with pain, so their pelvic floor muscles are very contracted, and when those muscles contract, the vaginal canal uh, closes, and so they keep trying to have intercourse through the pain, and so they eventually start abrading and and eroding this area, and that uh, contributes to their pain even more. Um, You're looking for dryness and signs of hypokeratosis, um, and so, basically, this uh, in this picture, I don't know if you can see it, but the vulva is really kind of uh, shiny, dry, and and uh, um, hairless almost, and uh, um, very inflexible. And these are very common findings in women who have vulvar dermatosis. And then there are women who will have actual glands, uh, Bartholin's glands, or masses, or things that you actually need to biopsy. And and if you do, the vulva is no different than anywhere. The primary care doctors, I always get referrals from the doctors for, for vulvar lesions, and I'm like, you guys are better at ter- dermatology than I am. It's the same thing. If it's raised and irregular edges and dark-colored, you should biopsy it, except for if it, in the vagina, nothing should be dry. We don't like dryness in the vagina. Okay? So everything, most, for the most part, past the, uh, the, the uh, introitus should be uh, moist and uh, pink and uh, have lots of wrinkles to it. The external sensory exam we usually do with a cotton tip applicator. And what we're trying to do here is to assess whether the patient has any signs of hyperalgesia or allodynia in these sensory dermatomes. And if you remember nothing else about the vulvar sensory dermatomes, which I don't expect anybody to know, just know that touching a patient in these regions with a cotton tip applicator should not cause pain, obviously. Patients should be able to differentiate between the sharp or the wooden end of the applicator versus the soft end of the applicator. And sensation should be equal on both sides of the vulva. And when you touch the anal region, you're gonna get a little uh, reflex that uh, puckers up the anus, and we call that the anal reflex, and that's what we call a normal anal wink. Um, And those are all uh, normal findings. So if you can use a simple cotton tip applicator to just gently stroke these areas or touch them at a uh, static pressure or brushing pressure or whatever it is that you want. and it's not hard to do. And then you can, after you've examined the external portions of the uh, vulva and the perianal region and the Mons, then you can move into the vestibular region. And in the vestibular region, we uh, demarcated using the face of a clock. So 12 o'clock is up here by the urethra, 6 o'clock is down here by the posterior fourchette. And then um, you can touch the patient gently with the cotton tip side of the applicator. We don't use the wooden end on this side because the, these patients are sensitive here. And again, they shouldn't have any pain when you touch them with the cottonwood applicator. Now, what is very important to know about these vaginal pain patients is that when you're doing a cotton tip applicator, you will not necessarily replicate the patient's pain. They might not even have pain um, for several reasons. Number one, um, the patients are actually not very good at distinguishing uh, or explaining the difference between internal vaginal pain and introidal pain. They just feel pain everywhere. So you could have a patient that has a normal introitus with very significant internal vaginal pain. The other thing is um, your pressure may not be enough to actually replicate what they feel in during intercourse because remember intercourse is not just about touch of the mucosa. There's also distension, massive distension of the muscular tissues underneath. So you're not replicating that with the cotton tip. So just because the patient has a negative cotton tip applicator, but she tells you she has pain in that region, that doesn't mean she doesn't have pain. You have to believe her. It just means that she doesn't necessarily have vestibular or introidal allodynia. So then you can move on to the single digit exam. And this is a very rudimentary image that I made, but basically, you know, there's not brain science. The vagina has the same, lots of muscles, but they're actually really cool because when they contract, they all have one single purpose, which is to close the vagina and shrink down the vagina, okay, and um, so there's muscles around this way, which we call the bulbous cavernosis. There's muscles down here, and then there's a whole bunch of muscles running along the walls of the vagina. So I tell patients, I'm going to do a single digit vaginal exam, so I use my smallest finger, well lubricated, and I do very slow insertion, because remember the initial, when you touch a patient's vaginal area, the initial thing that's going to happen is they have a reflex that contracts those muscles. So if you just go and push past that very quickly, you're gonna cause them pain, and that's not necessarily abnormal. So you have to just touch them lightly, let the muscles relax a little bit, and then do slow gentle insertion so that you can assess the internal musculature. And then uh, you can ask the patient to voluntarily contract around the single digit to assess strength and tone. And then you can apply quite a bit of pressure to the vaginal walls. And if you apply pressure at the five and the seven o'clock position along the vaginal walls, um, you will be touching the levator muscles. And there's actually three muscles that make up that big muscle, but we won't talk about that. You can palpate those muscles. You can palpate the cervix and you can palpate the uterus and the annexa all with this one single digit. So the question is when you're doing this exam, what is normal? And there's actually not a lot of very good data that tells us what is normal, but I can tell you from the little bit of data we have and from clinical experience, um, most most women should tolerate pretty deep palpation of the pelvic floor muscles without pain and um if you look at the literature the denis was one that published some of the study but basically she's shown that the pelvic floor muscles can tolerate as much as two kilograms of pressure without any pain and if you think about what is that if you take your fist your fist and push with your index finger push hard enough to start blanching the tissues around that's about two kilograms of pressure and women who don't have pelvic floor muscle problems will tolerate that and they'll tell you if you ask them is that pressure or is it pain, they can differentiate between pain and pressure, okay? So if they tolerate deep palpation of those pelvic floor muscles, that's normal. If they tell you it's painful, even when you're applying light pressure, then that is abnormal. They should also be able to voluntarily contract and relax all the way around your digit, okay? And so they should be able, if if they can't do that, that usually, Meryl can explain this to you very well, but what happens a lot of times is they either stay in a permanently contracted state, so they've got no voluntary control over their muscles, or involuntary control, and that's a problem, because then they can't, a lot of them, they're having pain with intercourse, and so what happens is they they initially, when when they can override, they can work past that pain if they can just voluntarily relax those muscles, and if they lose that ability, then that's even worse for them, because they're not able to accommodate the penile shaft at all, even when they really think about it a lot. Uh, Pelvic floor muscles should feel soft and pliable, okay? Um, If they feel like this board, you probably have a problem, and the patient has pain. And then if the patient tolerates a single digit exam, then you can go ahead and do the internal speculum exam. And at this point, when we do a speculum exam, most people will do a vaginal pH, a wet prep, get cultures if there's a discharge, or a biopsy if they see something abnormal. I have a referral practice, so I usually don't have to do any of this because it's been done before patients get to me. But if you're seeing these patients for the first time, you should um, um, examine that anything that you see in the vagina that's abnormal, such as a discharge or a mass. Diagnostic tests for patients with uh, sexual pain. Luckily enough, there's not much that we have to do. Most of the time, we just do a urinalysis. Like I said, the vaginal cultures and a transvaginal ultrasound, those are basic. Um, and as it turns out, most of the time, those will be normal, okay? But we still have to get them because, like I said, there are many other potential ideologies for sexual pain, and so we have to rule those things out. <clears throat> so here's our patient. Um, if you remember her, she had she was a gravita one, and she uh, came in and she had some, sex, some pain during intercourse and decreased libido. And you did your exam, so you did the full, full exam, and you didn't see any kind of discharge, or she had very nice, healthy, clear vaginal discharge. She had a little bit of erythema on the posterior foreshad, and that's from having intercourse. And she had bilateral levator pain. So when you did your single-digit exam, she had pain. So what would you do next? So this is where it's a good time to talk about what treatments are available for dyspareunia, and and I have to tell you, and again in this talk you've heard me use the term dyspareunia, vulvodynia almost interchangeably, and I have to tell you that is part you know bad habit, but also part the 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 issue is that the the treatments we we use them interchangeably, and so we are actually treating more of symptoms than we are actually treating an actual disorder, um, so. If a patient has sexual pain or painful intercourse or pain when the vagina is touched or pain in the vagina when she's sitting or walking or doing whatever, pain in that area in general, this is what we would do. There are many available treatments and what is really frustrating to me is when a patient comes to me and says, well, there's nothing you can do. Well, actually there's probably quite a bit that we can do. Um, So the first thing that we start with is education and vulvar care. A lot of these patients are very focused on their vagina. They're feeling pain all the time. Imagine if you were walking around every day and you were just thinking about your vagina all day long. Right? It's pretty distressing. Now you think about it, all the things you do in de- every day and you don't ever once think about your vagina or your testicles or your penis. So now you're thinking about this every day, you're obsessing about what you can put on it to make it feel better. And so women who have this kind of pain are constantly putting things in that area that probably are doing more harm than good. And one of my favorite things is, uh, how many people have heard about this Gwyneth Paltrow website Goop thingy? Have you guys seen the amount of things they tell women to put in the vagina? Jade eggs, seaweed sponges—it's crazy. <laughs> women are reading the stuff and they're trying them all out. And some of the, a lot of time, the stuff is more harmful than anything else. We do have topical applications so we have topical lidocaine topical steroids topical estrogens that we can use in the vagina we have we use analgesic therapy just like you would for any other chronic pain syndrome we use intravaginal physical therapy we use behavioral therapies and psychiatric therapies and we use sex therapy we use injections neural blocks and trigger point injections for folks that have myalgias Sometimes, very rarely, we'll do a vestibulectomy, which is a surgery to remove that vaginal entrance. And the truth of the matter is that even though we have all of these options, the key thing is not just going from one thing to the next. The key thing, what we usually do is multimodal therapy. So we use multiple things at once, and we tailor treatment to patients. And I think that's really what makes this type of care very difficult because you actually have to tailor treatment to each patient. You have to listen to them and see what their needs are. So in education, we usually tell patients to avoid overwashing the vagina. Stop trying to make it clean and dry. That's actually not going to help. Uh, Stop using harsh cleansers. Avoid wiping. Wipe all the time. Um, We actually uh, tell them to avoid any kind of drying agents and use lubrication, not just during intercourse, but even just in their daily activities. We tell them to avoid tight clothing if that bothers them. And we really spend a lot of time trying to tell them, I want you to focus on something else today. I want you to spend 10 minutes not thinking about your vagina. Do something else that you can uh, uh, focus on positive that, that doesn't have to do with your vaginal pain. And you'd be hard, you'd be surprised how hard this is for these patients. And then the key thing that we teach them is stop trying to have intercourse when it's painful. Especially if someone has a myalgia or some kind of musculoskeletal problem and we end up sending the patient to therapy, to physical therapy, every time they have pain with intercourse, their pelvic floor muscles contract back up. And and they learn to fear intercourse itself, not just the pain, but just the act of intercourse. And we'll talk a little bit about that in just a minute. And then we try to tailor Uh, treatments after we do the education we tailor treatments based on what they need so if we have a patient that has a lot of vaginal atrophy we'll start with our um, topical uh, hormonal creams Um, we do have the option if a patient is not a a good candidate for that or doesn't tolerate a a topical cream because it burns them we now can use oral um, uh, selective estrogen receptor uh, modulators we can use topical lidocaine although that only works for a little bit and lots of lubrication involve our care If we have patients that have actual dermatosis for those patients, we use topical steroids. If we have patients that have myalgias either as the primary cause of the pain or as a secondary cause, meaning they had pain from say, endometriosis or something, and then they got a myalgia, and then they got the the, the, the dyspareunia. And so that's a secondary myalgia. Then for those folks, we'll use physical therapy. About 80% of our patients are in pelvic floor physical therapy. Sometimes we'll use muscle relaxants, and sometimes we'll use trigger point injections and anesthetic blocks just to give them some pain relief while the physical therapist is working her magic. And then sometimes we have patients that have pain with recurrent infections, and then we'll do more chronic, long-term antimicrobial therapy. And this is, if, if this list of treatments pretty much covers 90% of women who have this type of pain. So what do you do if your exam is normal? You do a speculum exam and uh, you do a single digit exam and it's normal and you do a speculum exam and it's normal and the patient still says she has vulvar and vaginal pain. Well, first of all, you've already, I'm assuming, thought about the myalgias. So that musculoskeletal exam was unremarkable. So the first thing to do when you think that nothing is wrong is to think about neuralgias people can women can develop vulvar and vaginal neuralgias just like the rest of the body and it's amazing to me how I can say diabetic neuropathy and I can say you know Some other neuropathies. I won't go through all of them right now But the minute I say a vulvar neuropathy people go really you can get that in the vagina Yes, we can and so let's just think a little bit about the neuroanatomy of the vagina so the vagina is innervated by branches of the anterior cutaneous nerve coming off from the top, from the iliohypogastric and the and ilioinguinal nerve. So they, the, these neurons come this way and they go to the top of the mons and the top of the vulva. Um, we also, um, it's also innervated by branches of the genitofemoral nerve um, and also innervated by branches of the pudendal nerve coming down from this area, right? So all of these neurons can get injured during delivery. They can get injured during laparoscopic surgery, cesarean deliveries. So surgical history is very important to get in these patients. And most of the time, what will happen is they will come in with pain, not just in, if they have a, neu- a neuropathy, in, uh, an upper, abdomin- uh, upper abdominal neuron neuropathy. They'll come in with pelvic pain and also vulvar and vaginal pain. So if you're just focused on the vagina and not examining everything else, you're probably going to miss them. So big, big, big risk factors for these types of neuralgias are surgical retractors, incisions, uh, and um, mesh implantation, um, and then obstetric trauma. And if you're taking care of veteran women, uh, spinal injury. So for women who have neuralgias, we treat them no different than any other neuralgia, even though the data is very, sometimes mixed, sometimes controversial. We treat them the same way as you would any other neuralgia. We basically will use topical anesthetics if we can. And a lot of times we will combine those with oral tricyclic antidepressants uh, or oral anticonvulsants. And then if those things are slow to work or work only partially, then we will couple those therapies with neural blocks and uh, we can do lots of blocks in the vagina we can basically block anything from the waist down Um, so and and most gynecologists can do pudendal blocks but uh, not all so for those kinds of blocks you probably have to seek an expert Um, and uh, there are people who are using uh, neuromodulation or to 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 just just like in any other chronic pain syndromes uh, to control those these types of neuropathies in the vagina and and it's nice because we can get to these neurons Uh, they're they're nice and easy to get to so here's our patient so during your exam you noted that discharge and the uh, uh, clear discharge and a little bit of erythema and your levator pain so what would you do for this lady and what I chose to do for her is I talked to her about vulvar care I started her on a little bit of topical lidocaine just to give her some relief and a tricyclic antidepressant low dose because she was also very distressed and not sleeping at night and I sent her to physical therapy. And it's amazing to me how a decade ago, we didn't even know what pelvic floor physical therapy was. And now we see these massive, like just when we, when we have the right therapist, our patients do so well with pelvic floor physical therapy. So that's usually well, well, where we start. So she came back um, and she said her pain was better, um, but she still had no libido. I think this is where you get really frustrated, right? Uh, And her husband's starting to get really upset because he thinks that they should have sex all the time, and and she's obviously not in agreement with that, so she's very visibly distraught. And so what's next? Um, So this is where we use a lot of psychological and psychobehavioral therapies um, for sexual dysfunction, and I will not go through all of these except to tell you that we use all of these depending on what the patient complains of the most. So we'll use sleep therapy, relationship therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, relaxation techniques, coping, improving coping, all of that we do. Um, But what is really, really important to know is that a lot of these problems will not become evident to you until you've been taking care of the patient for quite a while. So sometimes you'll keep doing these medical therapies and the patient's not getting better, not getting better. And then you really sit down and get a better history and then you realize we have a whole lot of things to deal with. And one of the key things about these types of therapies is to remember that to a certain degree, what we're trying to do is to desensitize the patient. And what I mean by that is, It's important to know that once patients have painful intercourse, eventually what happens is they just fear intercourse itself. And so we can take away the pain, but the act of having intercourse, they're still not ready to go to it. They're still afraid to feel, potentially feel that pain, even though the physical exam in clinic or during physical therapy is normal or reassuring. And so what we do with patients, uh, with these patients a lot, we'll use things like vaginal dilators. Um, We talk to our physical therapists a lot about, you know, is this patient ready to have intercourse? I mean, I know she's pain-free, but is she actually mentally ready to go back to try and have insertional intercourse? And then we try to just help identify the factors that are really uh, important in, in the patient's relationship that's interfering with that libido besides just the pain, because the relationships are often very dysfunctional. And then just to close off, one of the things that we do during this type of therapy is to, assess, uh, to address sexual myths, and they are abound. And these are some of my fa- favorites. The bigger the better, the tighter the better, and it's normal for couples to have sex all the time. And we all know that's not true, and it can be quite detrimental to our patients to live with these kinds of myths. And so I always try to address them when we're, when we're in this part of the therapy here is a judge this is a canadian justice robin camp uh he actually got in trouble because he actually during a trial said well it, it's probably okay to have some pain during sex this was a, 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 a abuse victim and uh and i couldn't even imagine that to, that someone at his level would say something like that but believe it or not some people think that having some pain during intercourse is normal and it's actually not <laughs> Uh, And this is my favorite. This is a recent one I'm gonna take two minutes. I know I'm going over, but this is important. This is a slew of articles that have come out recently on the internet about how vulvodynia is actually vaginal depression. It's a psychological disorder, they say, or a disorder caused by by some psychological abnormality um, because vulvodynia is treated with antidepressants and because vulvodynia is actually common like depression and it causes depression. And I could not even imagine a faultier argument based on no science whatsoever. In fact, the science actually has not been able to show that vulvodynia is a psychological disease. Um, First of all, second of all, we use antidepressants to treat the pain, not the the depression. In fact, the doses that we use for pain are much lower than you would use to treat depression. And, And lastly, actually, a whole bunch of patients who have vulvodynia don't have depression. They have adapted, they cope with their pain, they have intercourse with pain. They may not necessarily be happy, but they go around living pretty normal lives. Um, so I, I, just, I have to just say, uh, be careful when you start reading these things because I don't think that anyone has proven that vulvodynia is actually just in women's heads. In fact, the majority of patients have a true cause for their pain that we can, an atomic cause that we can treat. So our lady, what I did is I sent her to sexual counseling and um, she actually uh, is doing very well and uh, still comes in periodically for her annual exams, but she's actually okay. So just to close off, dyspareunia and sexual pain is actually multifactorial. It's important to rule out things like vaginitis, but also think of more um, unconventional diagnosis such as myalgias and neuralgias. And do try to uh, involve patients uh, do try to use a multidisciplinary team approach and and think about organic and psychosocial dysfunction. They both need to be addressed. Um, and just because you fix someone's pain, that doesn't necessarily mean that they will return to normal function. And we have to be very sensitive to that. And in general, this type of pain is actually very similar to what you guys do in clinic every day. And lastly, because I know that one of the things that the biggest problem we have is we just don't have the resources to take care of our patients. So I put this up here. Um, this is the International Pelvic Pain Society website. It actually has educational videos and pamphlets in Spanish and English and Creole and for patients and for providers. There's a whole bunch of stuff that you can actually email the experts and ask them questions. There's observerships and grants. Please go take advantage of this stuff. And that's it.